All right, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? It's wonderful to see you all. It's wonderful. You guys are looking good this morning. Uh, we want to welcome you here. If you haven't been around and this is your first time here or you're just joining in, we're in the book of Leviticus. So if you want to go ahead and start turning there in your Bibles, it's at the beginning. We're going through the book of Leviticus, and the title of this series is holy, right? And what we're doing as a church is the first third of the year, what we're focusing on is what does it look like to love God? And we've decided if, if, we, if we're going to love God, we actually need to know who he is and what his character and nature are looking like. So we're focusing on that. And we thought, what better way to look at God's character and nature than to look at Leviticus, the book that usually kills your Bible reading plan for the year, but not this year. This year, you're going to love it. It's going to be awesome. Um, I'm excited for it, all right? So just to catch you up, uh, if you missed out on last week's sermon, you can go back and watch it. I encourage you to do that. It gives some more context for the rest of the book. But for this morning, just a quick review. So we talked about the major overarching theme of the book of Leviticus is this idea that God is holy. He is communicating to his people that he is holy. And what we looked at is we looked at last week from creation that God uh, and fall. And then we look at God establishing this covenant with this man named Abraham that he's going to make him a great nation. right? And then they become enslaved in Egypt and God delivers them. We went all through that last week. And what we see in the book of Leviticus is God communicating who he is to his people, right? This is the first time that God is establishing Israel in the middle of the wilderness, and he's communicating who he is to his people. And the first thing, the thing that is most important for his people to know is that he is holy. He is holy. He's a holy God. And we talked about what does that mean? It's a word we don't talk about a lot. And uh, last week I had a lamp with a light out here and kind of the light bulb in in our sermon graphic here. The idea is that God is holy, so if you imagine a picture of a light, the light pushes back, it consumes, it destroys any kind of darkness that gets close to it. So it's not that, that God is so angry and, and out to get all the sin, but it's just that as God is holy, as sin or anything be, uh, unclean comes close to him, it's consumed and destroyed by his nature because he is by nature holy, which is perfect or flawless, right? So that's kind of some context to where we get to this week. All right, and this week we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6, verse 8. All right, I know it's a big chunk of scripture. I'm going to kind of give us a 30,000 foot view, and I think what God would have for us this morning. So, uh, if you are able to, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? We're in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. It says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's servants, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar." At the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priests shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water, and the priest shall burn it, burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with the pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that you reveal your character, your nature to us through your word, and we see your character and nature. We see that you are holy in the book of Leviticus. Help that be imprinted on our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit this morning to soften our hearts to receive whatever you would have for us. God, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would be the teacher this morning. Anything that's from you, God, would stick to people's hearts. They would receive it well, and anything that's of me uh, would go one in one ear and out the other. God, I pray that uh, you would use this book, use your word by the power of your spirit to transform our hearts. Help us to love you, to desire your presence, to recognize that you are holy. In your name we pray, amen. So I don't know how many of you have started a new uh, Bible plan, but I have for the year, and it's been going great. I've been working through the book of Genesis, and as I was, you know, we have Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus, for those of you that are familiar with the Bible. And as we looked at Leviticus, like Genesis builds up so well to Leviticus. It explains so much of the context that we have in Leviticus. And it's been great to kind of go through these stories throughout uh, Genesis and see this kind of repetitive theme. So if, if you've been following along, which I hope you have been, uh, through your Bible reading plan, hopefully you're in Genesis some, you'll see that constantly these people of God, God, God reaches out to people, he pursues them, he calls them. The, the first one we kind of see, the big one we talked about last week was this man named Abraham, right? He, God promises that he's going to make him this great nation and that the whole world is going to be blessed through him, through this nation. And, and we see as you read the story that Abraham's pretty old, like he's past, his wife's past the age of having kids, and it's like, how is this possible? And you see Abraham holding on to this promise, but it seems like, as he's like backed into this corner, it seems like it's not possible. There is no way that this is going to actually happen, you know, that he's actually going to have a son. And yet, God provides a way. Right? And if you follow along the stories of working through Genesis, generation after generation, God, like God's people, these people that he calls, they find themselves in these really terrible situations where it seems like there's no way out, and yet God consistently provides a way for them. Over and over again, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is the story of Joseph, right? So we're talking about the great, great, great grandsons of Abraham, right? They have all these brothers, they hate their brother Joseph, they betray him, they sell him to sla- into slavery, into Egypt. He goes there, it's a terrible life as a slave, then imprisoned. And then, eventually, God steps in, reveals like, the interpretation of a dream to him, and he finds himself being second, like, the, the second in command of all of Egypt. Right? He finds himself second only to the Pharaoh. And, and what we find is there's this famine throughout the land, and God uses right, this situation where it seems like Joseph's life is backed into a corner. At one point, he is in a prison cell and looks like he has no hope, and there's no way forward for him, and God provides a way. And at the same time, his brothers who betrayed him Right, who, who totally you know, were ready to kill him out of jealousy. They're starving, there's famine, and God uses Joseph's authority in Egypt to provide a way for, for the brothers. It's just amazing. No matter what happens, God is always providing a way. Last week we talked about then that the Israelites are in Egypt for 400 years. They're slaves. They, there's no way out for them, it seems like. And then God calls Moses. He brings about plagues, and he provides a way out for them. And then they find themselves, as they leave, between the sea and the Egyptian army. They're stuck at this one point. Again, it seems like there is no way forward for them, and God parts the waters and provides a way. And what I want you guys to understand is that all throughout the history of God's people, and really probably throughout each of your lives, you can testify to how God has provided a way for you when it seemed like there was no way forward. Like that's God's consistent story to his people. When it seems like all hope is gone, he provides a way for them to go forward. And what we're looking at in Leviticus 
Is God providing a way all the way back to the beginning of Genesis that we talked about last week, where there's the fall and Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden? And the question we said Leviticus is looking to answer last week is this. How does a holy, perfect, flawless God dwell with an unclean, imperfect, unholy people? How does that happen and they don't just get consumed? And that's what God is establishing in Leviticus. What we're seeing is that God provides a way. God provides a way because he is holy, all right? So a little bit of historical background before we kind of get to what I believe God has for us this morning, all right? So if you're looking through chapters 1 through uh, 6, 8, kind of these verses, it's divided up into two kind of uh, categories. And you can see the categories divided up because of, of the language that you see at the end of the paragraphs after they talk about each uh, offering or, or sacrifice. You'll see for chapters 1 through 3, you'll see that uh, the, the, the phrase that, that's at the end of each um, instruction is this. There's a pleasing aroma to the Lord, right? There's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What does that mean? Does God loves the smell of you know, a steak on the barbecue, that's not the point, all right? That means that God loves the obedience of his people, all right? That's, that's what it's saying. So the first three chapters, that's how it ends. There's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The second, the second part, four through chapter six, verse eight, at the end of it, it says, the priests will make an atonement for them and they will be forgiven. Priests will make an atonement for them and they will be forgiven. Those are the, those are the phrases at the end of it. And that just means that they're going to be forgiven, all right? So that's how it's broken up. What I, want us, what I want you guys to understand is that God, again, remember the context here. God is establishing his people. He's revealing who he is. And he's telling them, how, how do you worship this, this holy God? Okay? And so why this is so important is because of this. Someone gave me this feedback earlier this week. It was, it was great. They said, okay, what is, what, is, what is man's natural tendency? Remember, this is, a, this is a people that were slaves. They have no national identity. They don't even really know their God. He's pursuing them and freeing them, and now he's telling them who, who he is. But they don't really know how to worship him. If they don't know, if they don't have instruction, what are you going to do? Like, what do we do when we don't have instructions or we're trying to do something, but we don't know how to do it? We, you know, watch a YouTube video or we go watch someone else. We look at some, we borrow or steal from other people's ideas of how to get that thing done, right? I mean, that's, that's our nature. If we don't know how to do something, we follow someone else. And so God's people, all they've known when it comes to worship and how they worship is the Egyptian way of worship. And as they go to the promised land, if, if God does not reveal himself and tell, him, tell them how to worship him, they're going to be tempted to just kind of steal and look from all the surrounding nations and use that. So it's important that God gives them uh, instruction on how to worship him and why they should worship him the way that they do. Um, uh, uh, A Bible scholar named Wenham says this about sacrifice, all right? He says that sacrifice is the appointed means whereby peaceful coexistence between a holy God and a sinful man became a possibility. All right, this is God establishes sacrifice as the approved means whereby peaceful coexistence between a holy God and a sinful man becomes a possibility. And that's because of this. If we go back again to Genesis chapter 3 from last week, the the cost, the penalty for sin was death. They were not able to be in the presence of God because of their sins. They're removed from the garden. It says they can't eat from the tree of life lest they live forever. Last week, just remember, that is the weight, the cost of sin. And so there needs to be something. A holy God, there's a penalty, there's a debt, there's a ransom that must be paid for this sin in order to make these people not be consumed in the presence 
of God. And so God sets up this system. It's his system that he approves of at this time. All right? So in chapter 1, I'm going to break it down for us really quick. All right? In chapter 1, we have what we call our, our burnt offering. All right? These offerings are required to make atonement for your sin. It's, it's the idea of making a, a payment for your sin. It's the, the consequences of your sin. Again, it's pain, that death penalty, that debt, that ransom for your sin. And so what they would do, as talked about, is they would kill a bull, right? They would have to come, put their hand on the bull, and they would say a prayer or sing a hymn, all right? Because God doesn't want just ritualistic sacrifice. He wants people to feel the weight, know why they're doing what they're doing. He doesn't want empty worship and religion. He wants their hearts to feel the weight of their sin. And then they kill this bull, right? And they would let it all the blood drain out, and then they would cut it up and they would burn it. Right? Now, for back then, okay, this is think about how valuable you have this nomadic people going through the wilderness, and the the penalty that they're gonna have to pay is a full bull. Right? So I, I called a reliable source this week and I said, How much how much for a bull, you know, to, to kill a, a beef cow today? What would that cost you? He said seven, eight hundred dollars, depending on the weight of the cow. So I was like, all right. So imagine in today's like every time you sin, the cost of the sin is you take, you know, seven hundred dollar bills or eight hundred dollar bills, and you just light it on fire. Like that. That is literally that's what they're doing. They're not eating this burnt offering. This for this offering, they're not eating it. There's nothing. Said it. They burn all of it except for the skin. I mean, it's just it's it's gone. It's just consumed. And and even then. I mean, it's not, I know the you know, value is, is very different back then. I mean, they're through the wilderness, they're dependent on this. So I think for us, like contextually, it's not exactly right, but just think of it more like the way your livelihood and all that, it'd be like setting your car on fire, okay? Like think about that. That's your means of transportation. It's your uh, source to go get food. Like for them, a bowl was an incredibly valuable, all right? So just understand the weight. This is a heavy, heavy price for the burnt offering. The chapter 2 then is what we call our cereal offerings and this is where you set your lucky charms on fire. Okay, no just kidding. All right. Not not your lucky charms, but it is these are wheat or grain based uh, offerings. And this is more this this offering has much more to do with your tithe, right? So what we see here is that the, the, the Levites and the priests, these are God's people who are running the tabernacle or the temple. These are appointed people by God, okay? They're, they, they're forced to survive off of what God's people bring to them. And so he establishes a way that they actually get some food. So a certain part of the offering goes uh, to the Lord, and then the other part of that goes to the priest. So chapter 2, um, about these, these grain offerings, these cereal offerings, have a lot more to do with like a tithe, how, how the priests are actually surviving. Chapter 3 then, I know I'm going quick, but there's a lot to cover. Chapter 3 is what we call a peace offering. So these offerings are not like required for, for them. These are like a response to God's goodness and to grace. So if you had a really good harvest, or uh, if God had blessed you in an incredible way, or you're just celebrating God's mercy and his grace, you're excited that, man, God's presence is here at the middle of, of camp, like, I just want to celebrate that, you would give this peace offering, this sacrifice. And what would happen there is part of it would be burnt, part of it to the priest, and, and the major thing is that you would invite your friends and family, and you would actually eat that in a celebratory way. So these, these offerings, peace offerings, were oftentimes at, uh, during the festivals, right? They would celebrate this, and they would actually eat the offering in the outer parts of the tabernacle, later on, the temple. So this is kind of like a celebratory, festive offering. So for all of these, then you see that at the end of them, it says that there is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And this doesn't have, this has to do with people's hearts, right? 
Back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, the problem is there's rebellion, disobedience to God. And what God is saying is this is how you worship me. And when people's hearts are inclined to worship God, there's obedience and God, God's pleased by their hearts wanting to obey him. All right, so that's the first three chapters, 30,000 foot view. Chapters 4 through 6, 8, all right, talks about sin offerings. And most of the sin that's, that's addressed here, these sin offerings, are for unintentional, they call it unintentionally. If someone has sinned unintentionally, all right? And it says, again, these are marked by the priest will make atonement and they'll be <clears throat> forgiven. Now, when it says unintentional sin, I think a lot of us don't think about, you know, we think sin, we're always doing it intentionally. And the reality is, is that we can sin unintentionally, right? There's times where we sin and we're not planning to sin. We just, we do. And so the reality is because God is holy and he will be consumed that, that sin also needs dealt with. Whether intentional or not intentional, all sin must be dealt with by a holy God in order to enter into his presence. And so God is saying, look, even if you unintentionally sin, Right? It needs to be paid for. There needs to be the penalty, the ransom must be paid, the debt must be paid. All right? And so, to be clear, sin just simply means to miss the mark. It just means to miss the mark. Like, if God, God's holy, perfect standard is, is, is the standard. So, if you go, like, I don't know if you've been archery shooting or shooting before, but like that bullseye right in the middle, like just hitting the target isn't good enough. It's like, perfectly in the center of the bullseye, like that is the, only, that is the only acceptable outcome. All the other shots or arrows going around the outside, those are all misses. Those are falling short of God's perfect and holy bullseye standard, all right? So, so any kind of sin, anytime we fall short or um, intentionally or unintentionally, we are sinning against God. And because he's holy, because he's other, it needs to be dealt with. Even in, even in Leviticus chapter 5 verse, verse 1, it talks about how even if, if we witness something and we're silent about it, like we, we see an injustice or someone sinning, and we, our silence is actually, we can, be, we can be sinning with our silence. And God says that's, that's unacceptable. Sacrifice needs to be made for that. So understand, church, that all sin must be dealt with. In order for Israel to dwell with the holy and perfect God, all their sin must be dealt with. Intentional, unintentional, right? It has to be dealt with, right? So when my kids are just like, I'm just spinning here, and if it run, my brother like runs into my fist and it hits him in the head, oh, it's unintentional. Well, it still needs dealt with, all right? You're still, there's still sin there that, that has to be dealt with. Okay, so because he's a holy God, again, back to last week. So, so understand that that's, that's, the, that's the overarching kind of two things that we're looking at here. Now, understand throughout the rest of the book as we go forward that, that God is going to categorize things kind of in three different categories for people. Um, one, I can't go so far, but over here, I hope I'm still, I don't know if I'm getting off the live feed or whatever, but here we think of, think of people as unclean. This is one category. Unclean. And then you have clean, right? And then you have holy, okay? So holy, clean, unclean, unclean, clean, holy. All right, now, so the question is, how does, how does an unclean people get to be holy? And the system that God establishes is a sacrificial system. So they have to sacrifice, and there's a sanctification process that happens. So they go from unclean to clean. Continued sacrifice, sanctification makes them holy. Now, what does that look like? Because those are words maybe we're not familiar with. Think about... Uh, someone that wants to play the piano. If you've never played the piano before, right, we'll, we'll correlate that to someone who 
is unclean, all right? They, they just, they don't know. So I'm over here. I've never played the piano before, and I want to learn how to play the piano. How, how does that happen? I'm going to need uh, uh, to practice, and I'm going to need to give or to sacrifice some of my time in order to learn how to play the piano. So I, I do that, and I move from not knowing or unclean to now I'm clean. I actually know a little bit about how to play the piano, all right? And then I go from there, and I give 10,000 hours of practice is what they say you need to be to become a professional. And it's, it's something, 10,000 hours of practice. So I sacrifice 10,000 hours of that time, and now I stand apart. I'm a professional. I am holy. Does that make sense? You guys see what you go from not knowing, I'm an unclean thing to a clean thing, to now I'm holy, I'm set apart. Now the other thing you'll see in, in, in Leviticus is that it, it can go the other way too. If I'm holy and I come in contact with sin, I, you know, I, I can become clean. Oh, I come to unclean, right? And then I have to start the process over again. We're going to see these terms used, but this is how things are categorized. Unclean, clean, and holy, all right? So just keep that in your minds as we go forward. And a lot of this, in order to be in God's presence, the people need to be holy. Not unclean, they need to be cleansed, and they need to be holy. All right, we're going to see that all throughout the text over the next few weeks. All right, this system, this sacrificial system, this is what God has designed. It's what he's set up, right? He, is, he has desired them. He has told them, you need to put the hand on the animal. You need to say your prayer, sing your hymn. Like, you're, you're intimately involved in this process as the person who has caused the offense, who owes the debt to God. All right, that's that's what's going on. And this goes all the way back, again, to Genesis chapter 3, 22 to 24, where God removes Adam and Eve from his presence. He removes them from the garden. That's the cost of their rebellion. That's the cost of them uh, rebelling against God. The penalty for sin is death. Romans six twenty three. the wages of sin is death. This is all throughout the Bible. We see this clearly uh, demonstrated, clearly talked about to people that the wages, the consequence of sin. The debt that is owed is death for sin, simply rebellion against God, for missing the mark. And so if we want to be in God's presence, if we want the presence of God, we need to ourselves become holy, and we don't know how to do that. And so God establishes a way for his people, a holy God to dwell with his sinful people. He makes a way. He makes a way. Again, faithfully through Genesis, through Exodus, and now in Leviticus, God is making a way for his presence to be in the midst of his people. And he doesn't have to. Again, he doesn't have to. He doesn't owe them his presence. They have done nothing to, to earn it. He just decides to pursue them because he desires relationship with them. Now, now think about this, this system that, that's set up for them. Think about this for us. Every time you sin, you have to go through this process of killing an animal, or you're unclean. You go from unclean to clean, the sacrifice, the sanctification to holy, right? Think about this process, how redundant it would be, how, how bothersome it would be. It would cost you greatly. I mean, there'd be immense cost for you. These people are in the wilderness. They have to kill a bull. If you don't deal with your sin, you're going to have to keep killing animals until you have none left. Right? And, and the sacrifices, you'll see, they're oftentimes scaled from, from the bigger to smaller. And a lot of times there's provisions made for people that don't have, like, but you still have to sacrifice. So no matter if you're wealthy or if you're poor, the, the sacrifice is still there. It's still required and it still hurts. 
right? It still hurts. People feel the weight of that loss of, of, of giving their sacrifice, feel the weight of their sin. The problem is, even though people see this daily, they feel the weight, they see the consequences of your sin, instead of being grateful about the presence of God that dwells there at the center of the camp, they're not concerned about it. They don't want it. It becomes unimpressive to them. The fact that, a, that God's physical manifest presence is, is, is there by cloud and by fire, they don't care. They're not concerned with it. They would rather have comfort. They would rather have pleasure. They would rather have power. They would go back to Egypt if they could. And what, the, what happens is they, don't, they begin to not realize that God is after their hearts. He's pursuing them for relationship. And instead of being concerned about relationship and concerned about the presence of God being there at the center of their camp, instead of being concerned about heart transformation, they turn Leviticus into behavior modification. And it's easy for us to look back and say, shame on them, but, but church, let's be honest for a second, we do the same thing today. How much of the church we're so much more concerned about behavior modification instead of gospel heart transformation, right? So they do it, but we're just as guilty. I know I'm just as guilty as, as they are. And yet, God still pursues them. His desire is still to have, to, to, for them to be in his presence. Think about what it would cost them, right? Think about daily going to make a sacrifice, all right? Think about how many people, you have hundreds, maybe thousands of sacrifices daily. You got to kill a bull, you got to chop it up, you got to skin it, and then you got to burn it. Someone after first service came up to me, it was great. They said, you know how long it would take to burn a bull? I was like, I I guessed a pretty long time. He's like, oh yeah, a really long time. So imagine for hours, every time after you sin, you have to line up. You have to go to the tabernacle. You have to make the sacrifice. You have to wait. You know, they're giving the burnt offering. You're there and you're watching this all happen. This is hours. This is like a whole day process for you probably. You probably begin to really think about the consequences of your sin. I mean, for us, we don't, I don't, I don't think we really do this. Like we, don't, we don't feel the weight of our sin as much. And, and Praise God for, for, for Jesus. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But, but, I mean, just for a second, like, think about the weight, the cost of their sin. A full bowl or, you know, whatever it was. I mean, it'd be like for us. I think for us, as I thought about this, the most valuable thing to us is our time. Right? We don't want to sacrifice our time. But just think about this. If every time you sinned, you had to go watch The Passion. Right? Every time you sin, so daily, like you sinned, you're going to have to go watch The Passion for two hours. That was a long movie, I remember. Great, but you got to go watch it. you got to remember Christ's sacrifice for you, two hours. How much of your day is going to be spent watching The Passion? Like pretty quick, you're spending eight hours a day watching The Passion of Christ. You're like, I need to deal with this in my life. I don't got time to keep watching. Like this is the reality that they're dealing with. They have the presence of God before them. They've seen him make a way over and over again, and they, yet they don't care. They still choose to sin. And I would say, if I'm honest with you guys, but by the grace of God, go I. Like, I'm not any better by, than them by any means. Like, you have to understand this is an incredibly difficult situation, and they are sinners. Like, that is, that is their nature, their fallen nature. And so I, I look at that, and I'm like, man, what do you owe the person who set you free from slavery, who's freed you from your oppressors, who's given you wealth, who's, who's guiding you, who's God, a God whose physical uh, presence is manifest to you. What do you owe that person? What do you owe the person that sets you free? The person that pays your debt? What do you owe them? And, and the only thing I can think of is the reality is we owe them 
everything. Whoever gives us freedom or sets us free, frees us, pays our debt, we owe them everything. And here God is making a way for them, providing for them, and they, they don't even want to give him their sacrifice. Right? That's, that's where these people's hearts are at. And I think for us, church, we need a heart check. We just need to ask ourselves, do we feel the weight of our sin? Do we recognize the debt that's been paid, the freedom that we've been given, the life that we've been given? Right? The good news of the gospel is this, is that we don't have a sacrificial system that, that we're stuck in anymore. The good news of the gospel is this, is that Leviticus points to Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, 45, it said, The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, gave, he paid the ransom for us. He paid the debt for us. Listen, when we sin against God, when we have rebelled against God, when sin enters in, our status before God is we owe him debt. We owe him a debt that we cannot pay. The only thing acceptable payment for the life that we've been given is our life itself. That's the only acceptable debt. And we stand before God and I'm like, I, I owe you, but I can't pay. And God says, it's okay. I'll pay the debt. You owe me a million dollars, I'll pay that million dollars for you. You give it right back to me. Like that, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that God says, you owe me your very life, and instead of asking you to give me your life, I will provide my son to pay the debt for you. That's holy. Understand, that's holy. That's not how we think. That's other. That's set apart. That's so different than anything any of us would have come up with. That the person who is owed would pay the debt for them. That's not how we think. That's the good news of the gospel. Here, look at Hebrews chapter 10. If you want, you can turn there with me real quick. Hebrews chapter 10. As the author writes in the book of Hebrews, we're going ahead to the New Testament now. He's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, right? That are wrestling with following Jesus. And he says this to them. Chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his servant, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's the good news of the gospel is that Leviticus points to Jesus. It helps us understand that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. There's no more sacrifices for sins. Christ paid it all. It was enough, and it was finished when he went to the cross. And he rose three days later. It was the perfect sacrifice. This is why, this is why John declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That reference points back to Leviticus. That God's people would understand the consequence for their sin was death. Was death. The debt that they owed, the ransom that they owed was death. And God says, you owe me, you can't pay it. I'll pay it for you. I'll send my son. A once and for all sacrifice. As Leviticus proclaims the gospel to us. Leviticus proclaims the gospel to us that he would be the one-time sacrifice 
for us? Can we hold fast to us? Can we recognize that God is holy, that his plan from the, from the beginning of time was to send his son to make a way so that his presence could dwell with us and we wouldn't be consumed. We wouldn't daily spend all of our time making sacrifices, but he would pay a one-time sacrifice for us. It's the good news of the gospel that we serve and love a holy God who is holy in the Old Testament, he's holy in the New Testament. He has always had this plan to make a way, just like he made a way for Abraham, just like he made a way for the Israelites to be free from the Egyptians out of slavery. He set us free from our bondage. Guys, the good news of the gospel is that God has been making a way for his people for thousands of years, and he will continue to daily make a way for you. Whether it's with your family, your relationships, with your job, with coronavirus, with politics, whatever, I don't care. The good news of the gospel is that God has seen it all before for thousands of years and he has faithfully made a way for his people. That's the good news of the gospel, folks, is that God has made a way and he will continue to make a way for you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. We thank you that you've continued to make a way for thousands of years for your people. Help us hold fast to the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. Help us to cling to Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you established a system that would help us understand Christ coming, paying the penalty for our sins, raising again, conquering sin and death, conquering the debt that, that, that we owed. Help us to hold fast to that, God. Help us to cling to the reality, God, that you so badly desired relationship and your presence to be with people that you sent Jesus. Help us to not, help us not take advantage of that or neglect it, God, that you're daily waiting for us, that you walk with us, that you put your spirit in each of us to follow you. Help us not to be complacent like the Israelites were. Help us to to desire your holy presence, God. Not to take it for granted or neglect it, but to really desire to walk with you in holiness. In your name we pray, amen.